I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Andy J Podcast. Hey, welcome to the very latest episode of the Andy J Podcast. I think this is podcast number 82, which, yeah, wow, where's the time gone? Crazy. So today's guest, he was the most successful, the best referee in the world, in fact. I believe that's the the exact phrase, the best referee in the world. God, imagine that. Imagine being the best in the world at anything, but refereeing when you're in front of all those people, the millions and millions and millions of people that watch football all around the world. We're talking Premier League soccer, football, soccer, whatever you call it. I know we've got lots of listeners in America, which is why I say soccer as well. Thank you to those of you that are listening wherever you are. I really appreciate it. So this is a chat with Mark Clattenberg. And here's a guy, not only has he been the man in the middle, the man with the whistle, the man with the red and yellow cards for such a long time. And he's done it in so many different ways as well, by the way, from the Premier League to then being in charge of the Saudi Arabian Football Federation and he also did a spell the same in China he's currently doing it in Greece he has been around and blown the whistle for some of the biggest games on the planet with the biggest players in the world consistently and he has always been considered to be the absolute top of his game on the pitch off the pitch he's a man who has been surrounded with controversial moments and headlines that aren't necessarily complimentary and there's been a lot of stories about him so we're going to get into all of that it's a really interesting chat from a fascinating bloke so here we go this is mark clattenberg on the andy j podcast the andy j podcast Now, I'm very pleased to say that for the whole show, we're joined by a man who once had the mantle of, quite simply, the best referee in the world. That sounds like a Jeremy Clarksonism, doesn't it? But actually, there's an award and he won it. It's Mark Clattenberg. How are you doing, Mark? Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for having us on your show. Now, Mark, I'm really, really chuffed that we're going to be chatting and we're going to be talking about your new autobiography, Whistleblower. Let's let's talk about you. You've carried around that title, the best referee in the world, which actually is pretty cool. Pretty cool thing to be able to say. But you've also, and you're very open about this in your autobiography, which is a gripping read, by the way. You're a, you're no stranger to controversy. There have been a lot of stories in and around you and your life on and off the field. Is it, is it a bit crazy being Mark Glattenberg? Yeah, it's uh, one of, from starting off at a young age and always wanting to play football. I played football when I was a junior. Um, didn't get any luck, but I wasn't, you know, when you realise that you're not good enough. Um, my school teacher gave us some wise wise words that, Mark, you're not going to make it as a professional footballer. Why not try it as a referee? And I took the exams and started refereeing for my father's. He was a coach for a, a junior side and enjoyed it. And it was the start of a, of a what can we say, a wonderful journey. However, in all walks of life, you, you get your ups and your downs, and I've certainly had some downs, um, but certainly the ups outweighed a lot of the downs because I had some amazing experiences. 
Well, we're going to go into all of those because we've got a nice long chat ahead and, and we'll, of course, be talking about footballing icons like Sir Alex Ferguson and Jose Mourinho and so on in, in due course. But can we start at the beginning for you? Because it's always interesting to see where people come from. And actually, something that stood out for me in the book, I'm going to quote it to you, I've got the book right here, was that you were a footballing mad kid from a council estate who found himself in a world of former public school boys, geeks and backstabbing bullies. And you say, I was different from them. I did not conform and they did not like it. But being different was your biggest strength. So let's talk about that difference, because unlike by the sound of things, you're suggesting that some of the some of the footballing elite, as it were, that run refereeing and run the FA and so on, sort of a bunch of toffs, as it were. You, on the other hand, I'm, I realise I'm putting words in your mouth. I'm not paraphrasing there, Mark. Um, you, on the other hand, were not like that. You grew up in a council estate. You didn't have a lot of money. And you were one of five kids, the man in the middle, literally. Older brother and sister, younger brother and sister. So you're almost always destined to be a referee in that sense. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was interesting because, because of my upbringing and maybe... You know, for example, even there was one time I was I was fourth official for it was at Blackburn and Sunderland, and um, for example, David Ellery, who was the became the head of English refereeing for the Football Association, which is different to the PGWL, of course, and he reported us just for having a bit of facial hair um, <laughs> on my face, and I, and I got reported, which when you think about it now, it's completely wrong, and these were the type of things that you had to put up with that if you didn't conform to how they expected you to be and therefore you didn't have a chance to progress in your in your career and I had all these things that you know what PGMOL um, things that happened during my career that were certainly against um, however all I wanted to do when I got on the football pitch was to do as the best I could um, and be the best I could be and yes you're not you're not going to like every person you work with, this is, this is life. Um, I respected everybody I worked with. However, it felt always during my career that I was not the one or the choice that they wanted for the finals, the, the, the championships. Um, and it was only, um, my support from UEFA and Pierluigi Killian in particular that allowed me to achieve my goals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I thought that was fascinating reading that in your book about how supportive Kalina was for for the large part of it. You know, the man with the most famous stare on the planet. Um, an incredible. Yeah, and he, he looks intimidating. I remember the first time I, I very first met him, and uh, I thought to myself, "Wow, he's a he's a very intimidating character." However, because I lost my dad very young in my life, he became a bit of a father figure, and he he supported me certainly in me latter part of my career and I had even though there was times in my career where he wasn't particularly impressed he would let his feelings known to us however the reaction he got from me was I, I wanted to to do the best for him I didn't want to let him down a bit like a father was and he got the best out of me as a referee and in the end yeah with his support, I achieved so much. Do you know, I love the idea that Colleen is something of a kind of refereeing godfather, you know, just kind of watching on from his ivory tower, kind of pulling the strings because he's, uh, yeah, he's an amazing character. Let's talk about the very start of, of the early days for you, though, Mark, because you do talk about this in the book, so I'm not sort of invading into territory that you haven't shared. You had a, a pretty rough time growing up. I mean, you talk about how you were bullied at school, how you had to choose the route home from school and what you hoped would be the path of least resistance. You hoped you wouldn't get jumped. How did that come about? Why and how were you bullied? What was what was that all? What, how did that present because itself? 
yeah, because you're different. You're not from a normal background. I think there was always this divide between children from council estates and children from normal houses. The children were different. They wouldn't let you interact. However, I had a, I was good at football and good at sports. So therefore, I was accepted to a point. But then there became the jealousy that because I was good at football, I would score lots of goals in the playground. I was always first picked. And that would create jealousy. So some of the children would then wait after school. And then I would spend my last lesson trying to work out to avoid the conflict, what was the best way to get out of school. And I used to leave in different ways. So I tried to avoid the conflict. How often did that happen, Mark? Because it sounds hellish. Yeah, many times. Not so much in the high schools, but certainly in the, in the, in the middle schools around about nine and ten years old. It was, it was, it was weekly. Um, and you just learn to try and survive and to try and, and, and I suppose this type of manage how, how it helped us, I'm talking about the conflict, trying to avoid the conflict. This is something that certainly helped us in young, when I was a young referee that I still try to avoid conflict because even when I used to go out at a young age with my friends into, into some bars, these players who we used to, I used to referee on a Sunday morning, for example, they would want to abuse saying, you've sent me off, you cautioned me the week before, and then you had to conflict manage again. So it gave us the skill sets when I started in my teenage and adult life. It gave us really good skill sets to try and, to try and um, become, a, become a referee because if you don't have that skill as a referee, then you'll, you'll find it difficult. I mean, it's often easy, isn't it? Hindsight is a brilliant thing and it's often easy. You're 46 now. You can look back on the lessons in your life and the bullying and so on and realise that they helped build the tools that you needed to become the best referee in the world. But that's not how it feels at the time to the nine-year-old who's terrified and choosing a different route because he doesn't want to get beaten up because he's from a council house. Because at nine year old, I didn't realize I was ever going to be a referee. And it's only when you do grow up that you, you realize that it does, it did shape, it did shape my life. Um, but when you're in that environment, you don't realize that there is a, a way out. Um, however, I hope that people that who read the book are in difficult situations like I was, that they can realize that if they can beat the bullies, they can achieve so much in life. One of the clearest messages actually in the bookmark is, is in my opinion at least, is how if you dedicate yourself to something, if you commit, you can succeed. Because that seems, there's a lot in the book, if, if you don't mind me saying so, there's a lot in the book and it starts on page one, first line of the first page, where you are proving people wrong. And it, I feel like you almost have lived with a life of having to prove to others who you are and why you are in a certain way. Does that make sense? Yeah. The problem in refereeing is, as a as football fan, you're judged as a referee. They don't understand who you are off the pitch. Um, I was just a normal person, living a normal life, trying to enjoy and do the best I could be. However, with your, with your, your employment, I would, you were judged off the field as well as on the field. So where I lived, um, what I did, what I wore, what clothes I wore, what car I drove, that affected certainly the, the, the management of Pigeon Well and m many things that I mentioned in the book certainly caused many of my problems. However, should I have just conformed to what a referee should be because I don't understand what a referee is. What is a stereotypical referee? I was just different and that style of my style of who I was 
shape me to become the best referee in the world. So if I reach the best referee in the world, what is a stereotypical referee? Well, do you know what's really interesting as well, Mark, is that actually kind of coming into the book, I sort of thought to myself, well, why would you be a ref? This is before I'd read a single page. I was like, why would you be a referee? Because, and, and you talk about this as well, because you get abuse, you get threats. There's the mental health problems. There's the constantly questioning whether you make the right calls. You're always sort of second guessing yourself and so on. It's a punishing and, and frankly, quite unrewarding career in terms of the grief that you get. But in the very first couple of pages, you point out your salary when you joined the Saudi Arabian Football Federation. £525,000 a year, tax-free. And suddenly I went, oh, okay, that, that's why you'd be a ref. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. <laughs> now it makes that, sense. Yeah, but that, that, was, that was, changing, changing the family's, that was changing the family's life and giving the security. Because as a Premier League referee, you're not on that type of salary. And very fortunate what a Premier League referee was, was earning because when you compare that to people who save lives, then it's it's comparative, um, oh, yes. and you know, I, you know, at the end of the day, I didn't do it just for the money in the Premier League. I did it because I love being a love being a referee. And yes, it, it's very difficult, um, especially the modern day referee, and now because of the scrutiny, the social media side of it. Where when I first started refereeing, we didn't have mobile phones. Then mobile phones were just things that you could speak. Now they become devices where people take pictures. Um, there's the social media, everything around the modern day referee is, is very, very difficult, but that, they have a lot of support now. That's what, you know, the need psychological, they, they, they get a lot of support mentally, um, as well as physically, um, at the highest level. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really important. Um, Mark, let's just have a little chat about money because I think it's, I think it's quite an interesting subject. One of the things I've always wondered about is how some of these managers, some of these Premier League managers, they get paid a very good wage, but they still get paid significantly less than, for example, the 18 year old striker who plays for them. And I often thought to myself, well, how can the players respect the manager when they know they're making five times the manager's salary? And then I turn it around on refereeing. And, and you say in the book, again, early doors, average salary for a Premier League manage, uh, referee is 100 grand a year, which is a great salary if, when you put it in the context of life. But actually, when you put it in the context of everyone on that field, you're the lowest paid by a very long way. Does that make yeah, it a challenge? Everything, you know, all, I think everybody just wants to be rewarded for, for what they do. If, if, if you take football as an example, in, in the Premier League, it was there was a lot of money in in the Premier League. But coaches, when I first refereed in the Premier League, the coaches were certainly a lot lower than the players. However, coaches are starting to catch up with with players. Um, refereeing's always been one of the industries that you know hasn't really had the investment. Um, the salaries have always been low um, because, for example, when the Premier League, the Pigeon Well was formed through the Premier League the budget would have been a lot less. Therefore, you know, it was new that professional referees, because not every country had professional referees, full-time referees. And when you compare it above the national average, I think it was three, two or three times over the national average, which to be something you want to be, it was a fantastic salary. But if you compare it to within football, I think everybody would say, look, I want more money. I think in every industry, everybody wants more money. Sure. However, it's a short career. And one of the things that people didn't understand was if 
I lost my career in 2008, which we'll touch on later on in this in this interview, is that if I'd lost my job in 2008, I'd left my industry in 2004, nobody's going to re-employ us in my industry because I've been out too long. Where do I go? I've lost my job as a referee. How I would have to retrain in life or retrain in a in, in a subject that I could try and find a job. Yes, and it's everyone not knows like it. And everyone knows Correct. it. So you, you show up to, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't work in a shop, for example. People would come over to you to ask where such and such is, and they'd look at you and go, oh, hang on, and they start up the referee chant. You couldn't do that. And that's why I think referees, certainly, because it's a short career, want to get as much out of it as they can. So when they finish refereeing, maybe mid, early to mid-40s, they should be able to retire. However, what we're seeing at the moment is referees staying into the 50s because they just want to protect their 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 life because they know that potentially when they're finished, they're not going to get another job and they've got to be able to have enough money to retire. So when I left the Premier League at 43 years old, it was a choice I made that I could easily be able to earn enough money in a short period of time that would allow us to retire early. Excuse me for the inelegant question, Mark, but I, I, when you Google you, lots of things come up, of course, all kinds of things come up, but one of them is your net worth. And according to Google, your net worth is $12 million. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I wish I would have to laugh. It's, uh, you, you read a lot on the internet, that isn't true. And certain, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what I do, what, what, I, what I always did, um, and yes, I love refereeing, but I always wanted to protect my family and therefore I would do anything in my work and life to, to work hard to give my family a, a, a life that they can enjoy because I have made a lot of sacrifices. For example, uh, when me, when my daughter was born, one week after I've left to Colombia to, to, for a month to, to officiate in the under 20 World Cup. So yeah, that's rough. my family have given me a lot of sacrifices to become the best referee in the world. Mm. Therefore, I have to give them something back in their life. Yes, and I don't think you should ever apologise for making money because you're good at what you do. Um, but I did, I did think it was worth sharing with you the twelve million thing because <laughs> I'm going to find out how. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've done the maths on it, and according to me, you've well, you've you've obviously with that you've been with the Saudi Arabian Football Federation for a very long time, not just for a couple of years. I know you've obviously then gone on to China and Greek, Greece, and we'll we'll talk about those later as well. My last one, I think. One, I think that- yeah, I think the problem is, I think my wife's reduced my net worth by her handbags and shoes, probably. <laughs> it, happens, <laughs> it happens to all of us, mate, and it's, it's, it's part and parcel of the mountain of life, isn't it? So, I sure. mean, my last one, which is about money, is not about your personal money, don't worry. Uh, it's something that my granddad always used to say, because he's the one that, that got me into football, bless him, and, uh, and he's the one that saddled me with the supporting of Newcastle United and so on. And when he was alive, he always used to say to me, you know, the the biggest problem with football now is that money has ruined the game. It's no longer about people from the region playing the other people from the region, 11 men from Newcastle playing 11 men from Birmingham or whatever. It's all about money, 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 money. And it's ruined the game. What's your view on that? Because you've been inside the game. You've seen crazy money flood into it during your tenure. Has it ruined it or has it made it more of a spectacle and more of a global phenomenon? I think we're seeing the best players in the world joining the Premier League and that's what's most important. The Premier League has grown so much as a brand. And I'm not a, I am not never criticise anybody for what they earn. If some company wants to give them whatever million they want uh, and that's what they're worth, that's, that's up to the company to give them. And for me, 
footballers make a lot of sacrifices. People in sport make a lot of sacrifices, and therefore they should be they should be allowed to earn as whatever they they think they're worth. And at the end of the day, football clubs are big entities, big businesses. They're making money off the players. So for me, it, it, it never bothers me how much money players earn, um, and because all I all I care about is you know your team winning, of course. And if Newcastle United win, I don't care how much they paid. However. I think the working class person, if they don't try, they get upset because you know they think that they're getting paid, overpaid uh, for doing what they're doing. But for me, I never care how much a player earns. Well, that's because you've cited if Newcastle United win and they never do. So you know, <laughs> sure, <laughs> you sure, don't you sure. don't care because you're celebrating a miracle. Uh, but yeah, that's, sure. that that such is life. But were you aware when you were the man in the middle during the during the Premier League years? Were you aware of the individual salaries? Did you know that? Player X was making that sort of money, and Player Y was on the other. Did did that kind of come into? I'm not saying it affected your decision making at all, but did it? Were you, did you have it in your mind? No, it was never in my mind. You read it in the news. But for me, it never never crossed my mind. I didn't care how much they earned. That's up to them what they what they earned in their salaries. But it's a short life, of course, um, and therefore they deserve everything they get. Um, and if the company wants to pay them that, or the company wants to pay them that, there shouldn't be an issue. And, I don't believe, other than that, the Premier League became the best league in the world because of the, the TV deals and the, the money that was coming into the Premier League. It made the players wanting to come to the Premier League and that was the most important thing to make it the best league it could be. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So 300, there or thereabouts, 300 Premier League matches, 13 years in football's top flight, 2012 League Cup final, Men's Olympic final, 2016 FA Cup final, Champions League final, European Championship final. I mean... It's quite the CV, isn't it? And yet, you mentioned it earlier, so let's bring it up. 2008, you were suspended uh, following accusations of match-fixing, drug-taking, gambling. I mean, let's be straight, Mark. Are you a match-fixing, drug-taking gambler? It depends who you ask. If you ask the ex-girlfriend, yes. (laughs) Well, the truth. Which which one in particular? No, it was a girl that I was going out with, and there's no point in naming people now because it's in the past, and the past should stay in the past. However... It all started back in the March when, when I was split up and I moved out of the house and I couldn't referee a match in Leeds because um, she wouldn't let us back in the house to collect me kit. And therefore, I had to be removed from the match. Keith Hackett knew, the Pigeon Well knew what was going on. However, everything didn't really come out until the August where um, she joined forces with an ex-business partner who made some allegations which I had to go through. Um, yes, I had a business that was in went into liquidation because a company didn't pay me a huge sum of money so therefore um, I, I had a, a debt that I had to pay my suppliers um, and I paid a lot of suppliers out of my own pocket even though this company didn't pay me so I had to try and you know do the right thing and in the end unfortunately the company had to go into liquidation and people linked the liquidation of the business to me referee and my ex-girlfriend made I think with a, the business partner around about 20 allegations I could prove some wrong. For example, I couldn't prove that I was drug taken, unfortunately, because we don't get tested as referees like players do. But there was some allegations that I could easily prove through bank statements that I didn't have any extra money in my accounts. So I believe that if some person makes 20 allegations and eight or 10 are incorrect, then I would believe that why, why, if what, the balance of probability that the other 10 would be false also. However, um, I was dismissed for misuse of my email account and uh, 
something I, I said to a journalist when I was not supposed to speak to the media. And after being suspended for so long and not being able to speak, I, I dropped me what we call our guard and ended up speaking to a journalist, which then they used in, in, in dismissing me. However, um, when I appealed, um, I won the appeal and um, therefore I was allowed to come back and I refereed one match that season at Man City Bolton. So from not refereeing all the way during the season, I refereed last match of the season that year and then I just came back as normal the following season. What was that like, that time when you weren't allowed to referee? Um, tough, tough because I was starting when I when I was sacked in the, so I was suspended from August and I was officially sacked on the 5th of January. Then times were tough. Um, the girlfriend wanted to split up. Um, it was, you're looking at the financials, uh, how am I going to be able to, to get a job? What can I stay in England after being sacked? Um, there was a lot of real deep thoughts for the month till I, till I appealed. Um, and once I won the appeal, okay, I can then rebuild my career. However, it was such a tough moment knowing that you're going to leave an industry that you love. And yes, I made mistakes. Of course, I made mistakes. But there were honest mistakes that people make in every way. And when you make these mistakes, it makes you a better person because you never make them same mistakes twice. Have you had people gunning for you before, Mark? Because certainly, sort of reading reading the book, it does seem that you've had a, a sort of really sizable number of people behaving really quite badly. Um, and, and actually scrutinising you for silly things. Let's talk about 2015. You you bought a very nice car. You bought an Audi R8. Great choice of cars. Good for you. But as a result of buying that car, you were put under a microscope. How could he afford that? What's he done? And I guess that whole match-fixing, drug-taking, gambling thing comes back. Sure. And then people start questioning, was it true? And I don't understand this jealousy. Um, my, wife, my wife had a good, good job as well, so there was a lot of income coming in. I thought to myself, if we're talking about a stereotype referee, what is? If I want to buy a nice car, have a nice house, I want to do well for myself, why shouldn't I? So there seemed to be a lot of jealousy within the refereeing group that one of the individuals decided to go to, to Mike Riley, the Pigeonwell boss, to, to form an investigation um, in some of my matches, which were found that, unfortunately, I, I, there was nothing wrong in my matches. And therefore... They didn't decide to suspend. Um, and, you know, if, if I had, then I would have certainly have got legal advice because whoever had said this um, certainly wanted to, to damage my career. And this was always what you were up against, the jealousy that people wanted what you probably had, a successful career, and they didn't have. You're listening to the Andy J Podcast and we really appreciate having you here with us. If you're enjoying the show, why not leave us a lovely review and perhaps five stars and subscribe wherever you're listening as it really does help. The Andy J Podcast. Yes, yes. I'm going to bring up another one, Mark, and then we can talk about some of the happier stuff, if that's all right. I just think it's useful to, to kind of address some, yeah. of the, some of the big moments in the book. And again, I'm only addressing things that you've already spoken about directly yourself. And this, of course, you, you already know what I'm going to say. It was the 2012 allegation from the Chelsea players and when you were accused of racism. And that must have been a really hard time. Just just talk us through that. This was the, this was the most toughest time, real tough time, because when, I'm, when I've left the stadium, I didn't believe what I was going to be, what was going to happen next. All I had to report was what 
over Mikel did when he came into my dressing room. And then within 30 minutes, my life changed. Um, when my mobile phone breaking news, I was accused of two acts of racism, one on Obi Mikel and one one on one matter. Um, and for that moment on, for days, it was the hardest experience because Chelsea had basically, without any investigation, made an allegation which told the world I was guilty of racism. Without any investigation, without any investigation from the Pigeon World to speak to my colleagues, did the referee say this? If, for example, Chelsea had a fact that I'd racially abused over Mikel, then surely they would have the footage and they would have the minute I've done it immediately. So if they'd done their investigation, they'd done their investigation, they would know exactly the moment I racially abused over Mikel. What did happen for weeks, for three weeks, my first meeting with the FA, Chelsea Football Club did not know the time I'd racially abused over Mikel. I asked if it was the first half or second half and they couldn't answer the question. It was only a week later we eventually found out it was the 68th minute that I was alleged to have abused um, over Mikel. Then the FA were very good. They asked for extra footage from Chelsea Football Club. And what they did find from that footage, the video footage, was that Oba Mikel, who said Ramirez was the player that heard it, wasn't the player that the two players, what the player that was standing next to us. Ashley Cole and Wayne Rooney were standing close to us at that incident. And both players were investigated or interviewed. And both players said I was innocent. They, they didn't hear anything. And what made us worse, a week after, I heard Ramirez being interviewed on TV and he couldn't speak any English. And what made me sad and angry was that either he's misheard, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, he's either misheard or it was a false allegation. I don't believe it was a false allegation. I think maybe Ramirez might have heard it. I don't know. Or he's heard something. However, what made it difficult for me was why did I have to wait three weeks for Chelsea Football Club to tell me the moment it actually happened because I'm telling you now, if I've said some words on a football pitch, there would be a reaction and there was none. And that's what made, and I think what I've said a lot of referees is that Chelsea Football Club didn't apologise and B, Bruce Buck came to St. George's Park to to speak to the referees and it no, he, he actually admitted when we said, when I said that there was media camped outside my house he said, what's your problem? He said, you live in a gated community. And everybody started laughing. Referees in gated communities. He didn't believe what world we lived in. He believed we lived in this glass bubble, which they did. We didn't. We lived in a normal estate with neighbours and we had media camped outside my house. He didn't realise that them allegations, how much damage it would cause an individual. And I didn't want to come back. I wanted to quit refereeing. I'm not surprised. And it was my wife. It was my wife, she said. Who's going to pay the mortgage? She was right. Who's going to pay the mortgage? She was right. I had yes. to come back and do my job. Yes. Well, well, let's let's dive into it, Mark, and, and let me be let me be very straightforward with a very direct question: Are you a racist? Far from it. I'm I'm, I'm accused still on social media. The yeah. abuse I take that I'm still a racist, even though I was proven not guilty, clearly not guilty. It still makes us disappoint now that. I believe that everybody has the same chances in life. And I believe that, you know, we've moved so far on with discrimination. And I believe that everybody has the same chances in life. And 
I've never, and it makes us angry now that somebody made that allegation under false, false allegations because the word I used, it's just, I, I would never use. Right. Right. Yes. And so what was said in the, in the dressing room between the two of you? There wasn't much said at all. It was just punches thrown. Um, he was eventually taken out. And uh, that was what I put in my match report. So all the match delegate, when he eventually came into the dressing room, um, he asked us what I was reporting. Chelsea were adamant, pleased to find out what Plattenberg's going to report. I reported exactly the facts, what Oba Mikel did. And then 30 minutes later, I'd been accused of being a racist. Now, there were two spin-offs from this, Mark, and I'd like to talk again about the, the sort of fallout for you. But before we get to that, the two spin-offs were you, you had some support from a surprising source or maybe surprising to the readers, the listeners, uh, and that being Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah, and, you know, we had some rocky moments in, in, in my career as a referee. And, but what Alex Ferguson did, he, he interviewed his players and uh, he knew how difficult it was going to be, how difficult it was for me as an individual. I think he was speaking to people close to us knowing how down I was, how difficult my life was. And he came out and he, he wanted to give us his full support. He believed that I was innocent. And he was the first manager that came out and supported us. And that meant a lot to me because he didn't have to. However, he believed what was right. And he believed that his players would have told him if I'd racially abused a player. And not one Manchester United player said I'd racially abused Yes, that speaks a lot to Sir Alex Ferguson, doesn't it? He could have just easily sat it out. He could have just ignored it. Not his problem, nothing to do with him. He can sit this one out, but he didn't. He went, he went above and beyond and stood up for you. And, and actually, as you say in the book, his, his name, his persona, carries a huge weight in the football world. He didn't need to. I was only a referee. Yeah. yeah. But he believed what's right should be right. Why should a referee who... Was a, I was a good referee. I, I believe I was a good referee. Why would it, why would we damage a good referee? And he believed why should we damage somebody's career and life over some allegations that were made? And he was adamant. He said, I believe Mark Clattenberg. And if you, in what was important, them words, he believed. Yeah. And that meant a lot to me. He never got any more favoritism, but I respected the man. I, I respected the man a lot that he actually come out and defended a referee. Yes, I bet. So where Sir Alex stepped up, and I'm sorry to bring this up, Mark, but you, you, you found that your, your family didn't, your, your mum uh, didn't help you in that situation, did she? No, the family was finding it difficult, and I suppose it was really difficult for them, but it was important that we stayed together strong. The media was so, you know, very strong. They were contacting my family. They were trying to contact me, and it was just, let's, let's not speak. Let's not give them any chance to to make any more stories uh, because the media really wanted to know everything about me um, and the scrutiny I was under. And I just said to my family, please don't speak. Um, but unfortunately, my mother decided to, to do some speaking, which didn't damage, but it didn't help. Yes. And, and your relationship with your mum since then hasn't, hasn't really been very existent, has it? No, but families are families and there's always feuds and, um, stemmed before this point so you know it's uh we were very close as a family however when you grow up maybe some of it's my fault um teenager teenager issues however um it's not so close now and uh, my father was probably the one that i was closest to most but unfortunately passed away 
Yes, he died when you were just 22. And it sounds to mm. me like you've, you've carried that with you, as I think everyone that has experienced that would. It strikes me that he was a huge figure in your life and continues to be a huge loss. Yeah, and I suppose sometimes you need you need your father around, and certainly when you're in one of the hardest environments in referee. And however, this is where Pierre Luigi Colina was probably the best. He probably didn't know he did it. However, he was the one that probably acted as a father to us and gave us the guidance that I needed to reach the top. Because everybody else, people like Mike Riley and David Ellery, didn't want to help, um, and therefore they 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 would rather certainly didn't. What they just wanted to leave me on my own where I needed the support, I needed the guidance where other referees had their fathers for, for just some support, being able to talk to. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a really tough one and it's amazing that you had Kalina there. It's, it certainly sounds like quite a few of the referees, the, the sort of household name referees that we're aware of, have not been your biggest supporters. You had a punch-up with Martin Atkinson. Graham Pohl doesn't come across very brilliantly, and Mike Riley certainly doesn't get a, a good ride in your book. Yeah, it's, it, it, that happens in all walks of life. I suppose in every industry, football players fight on the training ground. There's words said in the dressing rooms. There's words said in the meetings. It happens in refereeing, of course. You, you're with you, you're with each other quite a bit, and therefore sometimes things spill over. Um, I respect Martin Atkinson as a referee, very good referee. I respect Mike Riley as a as the boss of the page and well. However, you don't have to like every individual. It's like every workforce around the world. Um, you respect, you have to work with people. However, you don't always have to like them. Yes. Yes, no, that's fair enough. Um, now, Mark, there's a really important issue that we need to discuss because you're being so open at the moment. I think it's important we get this out there. And that is, of course, the critical the critical subject of the hair weave. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you've been very, very open about this one. Yeah, of course, because people realised that I started getting hair in. <laughs> it was one of them where I was losing my hair. I was getting a bit self-conscious. I think now more and more men are doing it. And, uh, I don't see any problem with it. You're not breaking the law. It's your choice. If people say it's vain, that's up to them. Uh, but everybody's allowed to do whatever they want to feel, to feel better. And I just felt that I wanted to have more hair so when I was you know watching me games back I didn't cringe um, I thought to myself there was an easy procedure so I thought why not and was it the best decision it wasn't the best decision I made however it was a good decision I made because I feel better yeah I don't think there's anything wrong with you know wanting to feel your best it's all good it's like people yeah. don't people don't get criticised it's, it's, it's the same as tattoos you know people say why should you have tattoos you're self-absorbed that's nothing to do with you're not breaking the law having a tattoo if you want a tattoo that's up to you, you know, but people have got an opinion about everything and therefore you get criticised because you do this or you have a tattoo or you have this car. For me, it shouldn't be. You know, I'm not breaking the law um, and therefore I should be entitled to do what I feel is right um, and what I want to do. Yeah, I don't think you should have to excuse or make any excuses or apologies for having a hair weave or a tattoo. I think that's absolutely fair enough. Now, let's talk about life after the Premier League. I still want to talk about some of your amazing stories from Premier League life and some of the managers and so on, but I'm, I'm very keen to get into this because I'm, I'm fascinated. Your career path post the Premier League, which, of course, as we know, is the pinnacle of the sort of, of the footballing world, Champions League aside, perhaps, um, but it's, you know, all eyes around the world are always on the Premier League. You decided to step away for a myriad of reasons. One of them, as you say in the book, is fitness and wanting to leave at the top and so on. You then, 2017, you became the head referee for the Saudi Arabia Football Federation. 
Then 2019, you were the head referee for the Chinese Football Association and you're currently the head of officiating for the Greek Football Federation. Now, those all sound like incredible titles. What do they mean and how do they differ from country to country? Yeah, well, Saudi, Saudi, Saudi Arabia was very, very different. Um, they, they, um, we, we stuck a deal before I left the Premier League and they want me to referee their, their matches. Um, but also to educate their referees. However, that changed very, very quickly because they decided the sports minister in Saudi Arabia decided he wanted foreign referees for all matches um, because they didn't trust the Saudi referees. So the education I was given the Saudi referees seemed to seemed it didn't happen. So therefore, I was just appointing foreign referees for some matches as well as officiating some matches in Saudi. And then when I did me, uh, I signed two years, and once the end of my contract came, China offered um, a, a chance to go there and just referee. And I thought, um, what a great experience to leave Saudi Arabia, which isn't an easy life because of the prayer times, the no alcohol, um, not being able to go in the restaurant. Uh, you have to sit with the men. There's two sides of a restaurant, two different doors. Um, all these restrictions in Saudi you didn't have in China. So therefore, I wanted to try a new culture, which was really interesting because you also had a... And food issues because of the the um, being in being in China with the the different foods, the different lifestyles, um, the weather. So it was a fantastic experience, and I, I, I'm one that I'm I'm so pleased I did. And then because of COVID, we couldn't sign the second year in China, and therefore the UEFA called me and said, "Look, we have a position in Greece. Would you like to pass on all your experiences and um, to help the Greek referees become better referees?" And I thought, "Why not?" Um, Greece is a wonderful country, uh, wonderful people, and I thought, why not give it a go? And I'm into my second year now. I have a contract till the end of the season, and then we'll see where we go. Wow. I mean, that sounds like a really interesting path. I believe you were actually in China when the COVID outbreak began. In fact, you you weren't sure, but you may have had it. Yeah, I was really ill for two months from December 2019 to maybe February, end of January. I couldn't get my breath. Um, I still have issues now when I go for runs some days. I'm okay some days I can't get my breath so I can't be tested because there was no such thing as testing then um, I got my heart checked of course and everything was fine um, but um, I don't know I've been tested many many times for COVID and I'm always negative I've been many countries during this time and uh, crossed many paths and uh, I've never been positive thank God but uh, I don't know what happened in I don't know what happened in the December but I'm still not 100%. Mm, well, that's, it's a crazy disease. So, uh, yeah, let's hope you don't have a long version of it. So the, so the Greek Football Federation, what, are you over there at the moment? Are you, are you speaking to me from Greece? No, I'm back in, I'm back in Manchester at the moment for me a book launch, um, but I will return back to Greece this weekend because we have some important matches before the international break. So, yeah, I'll analyse all the games and try and give some referees some uh, experiences because it's not just about the laws of the game, it's about making them understand football, making them understand why they made the decision. Um, and hopefully I'm trying to pass on my experiences that what made me reach the top, I can give them the same goals. Yeah, no, it sounds it sounds really interesting. And of course, on top of this, you have lots of media duties now as well. You know, you're a pundit for many different uh, networks across the globe. You mentioned that the, the Greek contract runs out at the end of the year. You're not sure what happens next. Is that something that worries you nowadays? You know, you, you sort of said that the Saudi Arabia move was... was to look after your family and so on, and you, you did make a lot of money from it. Presumably, you know, you've, you've got some 
you've got some cash now, but are you still somebody that, that worries a little bit? What's 2022 going to hold for you? What's 2023 going to be? Or do you feel like you've done enough now to know you'll be falling on your feet? No, I, I think I'm, I'm more in control of my life. When I was a Premier League referee, I wasn't in control. Pigeon well controlled, you know, everything you could do. You couldn't work any other job, which is a fair point. Um, you had to concentrate just on refereeing where now there's different, um, I've got different avenues where I can work in the media. I can advise other countries. So there's lots of op- what we call opening doors. So there's one, one door closes, another one opens. So I've got plenty of opportunities. I've got three or four stable projects, um, which year on year seem to renew. So even if I left Greece, there is still enough um, to keep us occupied. Um, And, you know, one day I would love to retire in Spain um, to think, you know, give me family the the time they deserve because even though I've been traveling for four years as well, it's not easy for them. Um, And I think it's important that I give them something back. Okay, I look after them. but I want to spend some time back, eventually back in the UK and and, and have a family life, which is what I've tried to give them. Do you have parental guilt, Mark? Because you have a you have an older son from a previous a previous marriage, uh, and and I believe he's he recently passed his driving test. You bought him a nice car and and he, he scuffed it straight away. Which yeah, of course, <laughs> that's children for you. That's well, and also and also you, you know, your first car shouldn't be any more than a couple of grand. Just have brakes that work. Yeah. you know. <laughs> no, but yeah, but yeah, but it was always a thing for me for me son that you know sacrificed a lot from so. Why shouldn't I be able to give him something that he can he can treasure? And it was always something I always promised. So I f- fulfilled my promise. But you know, my daughter, I look after my daughter. Yeah, they probably miss uh, they miss the day to day father. However, um, I support them as much as I can. I come home as much as I can. We will have fun together. We will have holidays together, and it, it certainly works. So, um, what? But one day we'll certainly come back and. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm just like any human being who goes out to work. You just want to earn some money for your family and give them the best. Yeah, fatherhood takes on many forms, Mark. And, and you know, providing is one of them to a lot of families. You know, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of families where the mother does the work and they share it and so on and so forth. But you should never feel bad because you're providing. You know, I don't know why. I'm yeah, but we, we, we have joint roles. So, you know, you know, it's about a team and, and the, the family's a team and therefore we work together as a team and we have fun to, together as a team and it works. So, um, you know, I've got to go out, I've got to do my job, which I enjoy doing and I get supported for it. And, you know, the family's, the family's amazing for allowing us to do my job that I love and, and to fulfill my uh, ambitions. And it, 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 it's fantastic that they, they love what I do and, and the supporters and everything I do. Yeah, that's great. Mark, what's the, what's the golden apple for you now for, for refereeing? If I could give you any job, any job in the refereeing world as the next one after the after the Greece Football Federation? What, what is it? What's the what's the holy grail for you? But, you know, I would like to develop me. I would like to work with UEFA more um, and and try and you know work a bit more with international referees. Pass on my experiences. Um, but I'm not rushed. Whatever happens after Greece, if if there is a door opens that I, I really would like, um, I certainly would look at it. Um, I need a bit more experience certainly in the management side of, of, of the referee and the administration side. Yes, I have the knowledge as a referee, but being a boss of an organisation isn't just about advising referees. You've got to understand business. So maybe I need to, 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 to keep learning, maybe go to another country to keep learning 
um, different environments, which certainly will help you if I do work in the UEFA or I go and work in another country. So you never know what could happen tomorrow. I think it's important because you and I had a little chat before we started uh, this conversation for, for the listeners. And I think it's important that we, we get out something that may have been misconstrued. And that is your feeling that there should be some tweaks to the rules in order to help female referees. Because at the moment, if a female is going to ascend the ladder and become a Premier League referee, it's very difficult if she also wants to have a baby. And so do you want to just expand on that for us, Mark? Yeah, because, for example, to reach the internationalist, you can't be under 25. So for, and normally it can take somewhere between 10 years to reach the very, very top in your, in, in your profession. So what I believe that needs to be done to support women um, more is to reduce the international limit age for women below 25. So it gives them opportunities that if they do want to have a family, which they're entitled to do, um, they need to do more to support them, to give them a better chance. So that if they need to have, because when they're announced to have to have, if they're pregnant, they can't run around the pitch. Therefore, they have to stop. And then they've got the, the, the additional six months after the, the after the birth. So they need to support them more by giving them enough time that they have in their refereeing life that they can achieve their goals if they want to have family. So by starting earlier, it gives them a chance, uh, the same chances as the man, um, to, to, to achieve the goals. And tell me something, Mark, is it something, because you're saying if, if they, and I completely understand why you're saying this, if they move the ages, then it's fairer for the ladies if they want to have babies and so on. And if they make it younger, is there a point where they would they would have enough expertise, they would have refed enough matches that they can make it younger? Can you, can you be a great ref age, say, 21, 22, 23? I think, you, you know, there's a, there's a clear pathway and, and I had a pathway at 16, uh, for example, when I was refereeing junior football. So if they start very, very young and we need to encourage more women referees into the game because at the moment we have an assistant referee on the Premier League, Sean Massey. Um, we have Rebecca Welsh that's just now been promoted into the Football League. So they're the pioneers and we want more women referees in the game and uh, we want them to reach the very, very top. Why Why should we not have a woman refereeing in the Premier League? Um, but as, as Even for a man, it takes so long to get into the Premier League. Um, the need to have, if for example, it takes 10 to 15 years for a man to reach the Premier League, we need to give the women a bit more time in case they decide that they want to have family, which they're entitled to do. It's an interesting point, isn't it, Mark? Because do you remember, well, of course you do, when Wayne Rooney burst onto the scene as a footballer, and there was this there was this great furor about how young he was. And then one of the pundits said very simply, if you're good enough, you're ready. Could that not apply to refereeing as well? Yes, but you, you hit a big point that you do need a bit of experience, of course. And I think you get that when you get all that life experience, uh, life skills, because refereeing isn't a bit like playing. You've got your teammates, you've got 11, 10 other players to help. As a referee, you're very much on your own and you have to develop your skills and how to manage conflict, how to manage football football matches and that comes with experience in life so for example the best referees are the ones that seem to mature around the late 30s early 40s yes i guess there also needs to be a degree of getting respect from the players and if you're you know a 17 year old referee with a 30 year old player around you it's going to be difficult to tell them what to do isn't it but if a player respects that, that's the most important thing the referee needs to earn that respect to the players and if, if a player res- trust the referee and, and there's a lot of respect there 
that won't give them much dissent. They'll allow them. It doesn't matter if you're 17 or 28. If you're good enough and you've got the, you can manage players and players accept you, then why not? Yeah, no, absolutely. And just to be really clear, Mark, just so that we've got this kind of hitting at home, because of course we know what things are like. Things get twisted, headlines get said, and, and you've been a victim to this a fair few times in the past, and we will get onto that. Just to be really clear, you are encouraging and supportive of female referees, not the reverse. I want I want more referees. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a manager of referees in Greece, and we are encouraging Greek referees, women referees, to, to reach the very, very top. However, it was just to highlight that what we need to do, we need to do more as a governing body. We need to do more to, to support these referees in, in reaching their goals. And what we can't have is them missing years of, of their referee in life um, and, and they don't have enough time to reach the goals. And they should be allowed to, and to have that choice that if they do need a tra- want a family, then we should be supporting them that they have enough time to reach that chance to, to referee in the Premier League. Yeah, no, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, now let's talk about a few of the stories from the book, and I'm aware we're tight on time, so I, I won't kind of go yeah. into too yeah, much detail. Have, I think we've got about another ten minutes or so because I've got to get a taxi. Absolutely, no problem. Um, so first up, you owe an apology, and you do provide an apology, amazingly, to Harry Redknapp. You sort of hold your hands up and admit you made a mistake. Just just talk us through this one. Is this the one? Was it QPR? No, no, it was it was Man United against Spurs. And you, oh, uh, yeah, you made it, a scandalous it, decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was Tottenham. I think Tottenham Man United in my career was probably one of my bogey games. Um, refereed it many times. There's not many times it went successful. <laughs> um, but there was a game. There was a game at Old Trafford, and uh, just stupid stupidity. Um, they were losing. Tottenham were losing one zero, and Man United were down to ten men. So I'm conscious not to stop the game because Man United are down to ten men. Quite correctly, um, the play out of wait till the stoppage in play. So therefore, Tottenham have got the advantage, 11-10. And there was a handball at the back post by Narnie and it went straight to the goalkeeper of Tottenham. And I've just played advantage. I haven't blown the whistle. I've played advantage, um, acknowledged the assistant. Um, and away we go. The goalkeeper's got the ball. Why not? However, the goalkeeper decides to, to throw the ball out to, to, to take a, 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 an offside decision. And uh, in between that, Nani comes round the back and taps it into an open goal. In law, in law, I'm right. In the spirit of the law, I could have found a better way. I could have just punished the handball because Nani handballed it, brought the, the extra player on to make it 11-11, and then let the match finish off how it would finish off. However, I decided to give the goal because I was right in law. But when you feel after the game, the spirit of the law and what happened? I should have given the foul. I should have just given the handball. Well, you do say, Harry, I'm so sorry in the book. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's sometimes you have to, sometimes in refereeing, you have to hold your hand up. I got it wrong. And he, I was right in law, but people didn't accept. If I've got to explain 20 minutes that I'm right in law, then it can't be right. If that makes sense. Yes. Yes. That makes complete sense. Did you, have you actually had the chance to say that directly to Harry or is it, is he's going to have to read Many times. Many <laughs> yeah. times after many times after but Harry's a great guy great character and he was certainly when he left the Premier League he was sorely missed what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to choose one of the following three and we will leave the other two for people to hear about in your book because you have anecdotes about Arsene Wenger Jurgen Klopp Jose Mourinho well and many others to be fair but those are those are the three that I had flagged to discuss who would you like to talk about 
Um, I'll talk, talk about Jose Mourinho because then it'll finish on the on the good note. Is you oh. know, Jose, Jose Mourinho came to came to the Premier League. He was a breath of fresh air, fantastic guy. I remember refereeing Wigan's first Premier League game against Chelsea. Frank Lampard scored the win in the last minute, and uh, he was very complimentary about my performance, about referees in particular. He was loved by everyone. Uh, went to Madrid, met him. Well, he went at, uh, into Milan first. I didn't, didn't have any dealings. However, I met him again in Real Madrid. Very happy guy. Have a beer with you. Enjoy his company. Had a great philosophy about refereeing and football. However, that changed when he became Chelsea manager for the second time and things weren't going his way. He was blaming referees, conspiracies. Um, and therefore, the, the, the relationship started to, to drift away. He blamed me for him getting them the sack at Leicester City. Um, I watched the game back and I'm still struggling now how I got him the sack. Um, when they were near the bottom of the league and I didn't make any mistakes in that match but he still blames me for that and I remember refereeing the Manchester derby when he took the, the position at Manchester United and he blamed us for missing a penalty on Wayne Rooney very difficult call it would have been interesting if the AR was put in place because it was one of them 50-50 ones where the goalkeeper comes sliding out Wayne Rooney pulls out possibly when he watched it in slow motion you could award a penalty however it wasn't a clear error from a referee you know it was very subjective and then it all came about near the end of my career where uh, I refereed at Stoke when Rooney equaled uh, Bobby Charlton's record. It was one of them great days where Man United fans would have been thinking about uh, Wayne Rooney. However, Jose Mourinho was trying to turn it on to me that he came into the dressing room after the game and I said to him, look, you must have been happy that I've refereed that better than normally because normally you criticise. He said, no, I, I thought you were rubbish. Uh, you've missed a clear handball on Shawcross. I've seen it. And I, I knew I hadn't. I'd seen it flush. It hit, his, hit him on the chest. And he started again. You know, you keep making mistakes, blah, blah, blah. And I just said, okay. So I picked my boot up, threw it against the wall, and he just went white. And I said, look, I'll quit. Because I knew I was going to Saudi. I said, look, I quit. If I'm wrong, I quit. No, 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 you can't quit. You're the best referee in the Premier League. No, no, I quit. I quit because of you. And uh, we had the conversation. In the end, we're left in good terms. However, that wasn't the main reason why I left. I just lost the love and also lost the desire because I'd refereed every game in the Premier League. I just wanted something different. And with that Saudi job, um, it changed it changed a lot of things. But, you know, as Mourinho as a coach, one of the best. Um, however, there was a lot of mind games. Yes. Yes, he was something of a maestro. And I would say to those that are going to look for the book, which I thoroughly recommend... There is a cracking story in particular about Jurgen Klopp that we're not going to go into now, but it is, it's worth however much the book is for that story alone. So, Mark, it's a great read. You've been really good company. So thank you very, thank much, you very for, much. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. The Andy J Podcast. There we have it. Mark Clattenberg there. Uh, really fascinating. Very nice guy. Liked him a lot, actually, and wasn't afraid to answer some of those really challenging, far-reaching questions and address the controversy around him and his life. Very nice guy. Liked that a lot. Thank you very much for choosing the Andy J Podcast. We have some amazing guests on the way. I don't want to tell you who's on next week. I just want you to hit that follow button because you will not be disappointed. It is a big star. It's a really cool conversation. So please make sure you follow the show. Thank you for your company today. Go well, have a great week and make someone smile. The Andy J Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.